Welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now and a freelance journalist with bylines in Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. My very special guest today is Daniel Okrant. He was the first public editor of the New York Times. He was an editor at large at Time and the managing editor of Life magazine. He's the author of six books, including The Guarded Gate, Bigotry, Eugenics, and the Law that Kept Two Generations of Jews, Italians, and Other European Immigrants Out of America. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. It's a real pleasure to have you. And my pleasure to be here, Peyton. Today, I wanted to talk about The Guarded Gate because it's a very detailed and exhaustively researched and beautifully written deep dive into the Boston Brahmins, who were a New England political social group that were really instrumental in the prevention of uh, Southern European and Italian immigration. And I thought it would help to shed some light on the character of Lori, who is a young Italian boy who's growing up in New England. Prior to Henry Cabot Lodge and the other Boston Brahmins beginning this anti-immigration campaign, but we're already able to see some of the ways that bigotry is taking root in his life. So Daniel, again, thank you for being on the pod. We ask everybody, do you have a relationship to Little Women? Did you read it growing up? I did not, actually, but my writing partner, Peter Gethers, says it's his favorite book ever, and he keeps nagging me to read it, and I will someday. Do you have a good sense, then, of which March sister you might be? We also ask that. I I don't know them well enough. I know their names, but I don't don't know them well enough. Okay, well, today we are getting into the fifth March sister so to speak, who is the neighbor boy, Lori. He lives next door. And I'm just going to read a little excerpt to contextualize who Lori is and how it pertains to your work. So we learn that Lori is an orphan. He lives with his grandfather, Mr. Lawrence. And Mr. Lawrence is very strict about Lori. He doesn't always let Lori play with other children. He kind of keeps him cooped up. So Joe asks, mother, why didn't Mr. Lawrence like to have Lori play? Asked Joe, who was of an inquiring disposition. I am not sure, but I think it was because his son, Lori's father, married an Italian lady, a musician, which displeased the old man, who was very proud. The lady was good and lovely and accomplished, but he did not like her and never saw his son after he married. They both died when Lori was a little child, and then his grandfather took him home. I fancy the boy who was born in Italy is not very strong, and the old man is afraid of losing him, which makes him so careful. Lori comes naturally by his love of music, for he is like his mother, and I dare say his grandfather fears that he may want to be a musician. At any rate, his skill reminds him of the woman he did not like, and so he glowered, as Joe said. So that's sort of an introduction to Laurie and kind of touching on his plight growing up as the half-Italian son of a decidedly non-Italian man who looks down his nose at the Italian woman his son married. So this goes back to what you've written about with this group called the Boston Brahmins. So my first question is, who were the Boston Brahmins? They were a social group really kind of uh, self-identified, cohered on their own, of old families who had arrived in New England, in Boston, in the 17th century, Mayflower forward. Some of them maybe came in the early 18th century. They quickly established themselves both physically and, and financially, and they were families of great wealth that maybe started poor, but coming to a a new and undeveloped country, they were able to take advantage of that. They were entirely inbred. They married each other. Often cousin marriage was a very common thing in that world. You were identified not by what you did, but who your grandfather was. And by and large, they were closed-minded. Their experience was closed. They viewed themselves as superior and they were suspicious 
of others. And I think it's important to say that's no longer the case, that the, you know, these same families are still very, very prominent in greater Boston. Most of them are very socially liberal, open-minded. The generations and the centuries have passed, the decades have passed, so that it's unfair to characterize the current crop, although they do know each other and they still do marry each other. Are there any names that you think people would recognize, any kind of major figures that might help put this in historical context for people? Well, the Lowell family, for instance, produced the poet Amy, uh, the poet Amy Lowell, the, the astronomer Percival Lowell, and the uh, uh, president of Harvard, A. Lawrence Lowell, were siblings. Okay. Lawrence Lowell, in fact, his name was Abbott Lawrence Lowell, and it's interesting that Laurie's grandfather's name is Lawrence. The Lawrence's, you know, there is a town in, uh, of some size in Massachusetts named Lawrence. It's mm-hmm. not very far from Lowell. The, the families were that prominent and, re- and remained that prominent. The, you know, the Lodges, Henry Cabot Lodge of various generations. I'm being a little bit blank here, but if you can think of a name of a Protestant politician from, from Massachusetts <laughs> before, you know, 1960, uh, Leverett Saltonstall, that was a kind of a oh. classic name. He was senator uh, for decades. They all went to the same prep schools, boarding schools. They all went to Harvard. It was automatic admission to Harvard for these people. This sort of closeness stayed with them. Interestingly, at the time of the immigration really ratcheting up in the 1880s and 1890s, they came up with a term to describe themselves, which was Native Americans, which showed what their regard was for the Native Americans that you and I are familiar with or any of our listeners are familiar with today. I'm sure there are some other names that ought to jump out at me, but they will in the course of the conversation probably. You touched on something also, which is you said that the kind of anti-immigration movement began to ramp up in the 1880s. So Little Women takes place during the American Civil War, and it was published in the 1860s. So what was the state of anti-Italian sentiment in New England at that point? At that point, it was fairly minimal. In fact, the dancing school that all the Brahmins sent their kids to was run by an Italian gentleman, Signor, but I can't remember his name now. The Italians who were in New England before the Civil War were largely from Northern Italy. They were largely from, you know, I can't say middle-class families, but they were not the impoverished Italians from Sicily mm-hmm. and Calabria and other places in Southern Italy who came, began to come in, in in the 1880s. So there would have been an automatic prejudice simply because they aren't us, mm-hmm. but it wasn't nearly as virulent as it would become when both the Southern Italian uh, immigrants came in and the Jews from Eastern Europe. Do you have a good sense of why even just the fact of Mr. Lawrence's son marrying an Italian woman would have displeased him? Well, sure. It's, you know, as I said, they married each other. They married cousins. Mm. You know, it wasn't just that they married people that they knew. It was a very closed society. Mm. The notion of marrying somebody who spoke a foreign language, you know, had a foreign Mm. tongue. I mean, it was unheard of in that period. The act of prejudice among the Brahmin families the so-called Native American families, mm-hmm. or the Irish. Mm. The poor Irish started pouring in in 1846 after the Irish potato famine, and there were tens and thousands of, of such. The Brahmins were viciously cruel to them, viciously cruel to them mm-hmm. in those early years. The Italians didn't really factor in that much because there were so few. Oh. In fact, I should say Paul Revere was an Italian. Oh, uh, yeah. that's news. 
but 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 you know he was cleansed by being in New England, his family mm. being in New England long enough. Sure, no that that does make sense. And I wanted to add there is a there is one Irish character in Little Women. They have a housemaid Hannah, which was very much not a reality for the real Alcotts. They were too poor to ever have household help of any kind. But there is a very kind Irish maid named Hannah who is sort of included as I imagine Louisa May Alcott anti prejudice. I think that that if she was portrayed in that fashion, I think that this mm-hmm. is a declaration on Alcott's part where she stood relative to, to, to this much broader prejudice against the Irish. You know, there was a phrase, uh, Nina, N-I-N-I, mm. no Irish need apply. Oh. And that was on, on outside of buildings where people might go looking for jobs, grocery mm-hmm. stores, factories, whatever it might be. Right. And it is not surprising that the March family maid was Irish. That was the, the domestic class Right. In New England, beginning in the 1940s, they were overwhelmingly Irish. But then it's significant that they are employing an Irish woman. If they're, they're employing Irish women in menial roles, you mm. know, as, as housemaids. Um, now, and obviously in a family that was more open-minded, as the Marches mm-hmm. clearly were, they would have regarded her somewhat differently. But it was yeah. really, they were at the absolute bottom of okay. the social ladder. And they were downstairs. They were never allowed upstairs. And that, again, does track with Hannah. One question I wanted to ask is sort of about the construction of whiteness and the point at which Irish and Italians became white. So the the physical description we get of Laurie in the book is that he has brown skin, curly black hair, and big black eyes. And Joe is noting this in contrast to herself and her sisters, who are described as being snow maidens or pale, having rosy cheeks. So what was kind of the conception of Italians like Laurie relative to to the Boston Brahmin class at that time? Well, as, as it developed, and I can't say that mm-hmm. this was necessarily the case in the 1860s, but it probably mm-hmm. was. There was this belief that mm-hmm. those who, who came from the current UK, they were white. Everybody mm-hmm. else, you, you ask the question about the Irish became white, even though they were from the British Isles, Ireland was still part of the UK at the time, they were of such believed to be of such a lower class that they were kind of dismissed even as possibly being their brethren. But by the time, by 1880 or so, when the immigration of the Italians and the Jews picks up, the Irish had been there long enough and they had votes. They had become uh-huh. citizens so that the leaders of the anti-Italian, anti-Jewish politics like Henry Cabot Lodge, they accepted the Irish at that point as being related to them. So it was quite a, a late development. I didn't know that. I guess I assumed it was all part of the same wave, but that's interesting to me. So again, just regarding the timeline here, Laurie was a teenager during the American Civil War. He would have been in his 40s or getting into his old age when this campaign got underway and took root. So what do you think Laurie, an Italian person who'd been established in America for a little while, what would he or people like him have dealt with during that time? Well, it depended whom he married. He ended up marrying one of the March sisters. It probably would have turned out all right for him. If he, in 1885, met a Sicilian woman just off the boat and fell in love with her, things would not have turned out right for him. Uh, You know, marriage was a way to either move up or move down. He could have had a very reasonable career, unlikely in the professions, unlikely in medicine, law, and and the like, because those all met passing through the Harvard Medical School or the Harvard Law School or similar institutions where there would have been prejudice against him. That's interesting to note. And that actually casts perhaps the central conflict of Little Women into new light, which is that Laurie initially falls in love with Joe March, who's the very tomboyish sister of the bunch. Joe Joe is a tomboy and Laurie 
kind of almost longs for womanhood. Um, and when he proposes marriage to Joe, she turns him down, saying that she'd prefer to be a spinster. And from then on, Laurie is sort of desperate to marry Amy, who's the final available March sister, which has kind of baffled people. A lot of people are unconvinced by Amy and Laurie. So do you think it's likely that Louisa May Alcott was thinking along those lines, what Laurie would need to do to establish himself just as much as Amy would need to marry into wealth to establish herself? Yeah, I mean, that certainly comports with the historical reality. From what I know about the Alcott family, it would have, you know, that would have fit appropriately. The ability of someone of Italian background, as we move forward in time, the 1870s, 1880s, to advance in New England culture would have been dependent, as I said before, first on marriage, but but also just on the nature of association. So presumably, if he were close enough to the March family, that whitened him. I see. That's very interesting. I I hadn't quite thought about kind of Laurie's side of the advantages of marriage in that respect, but that's, it's very interesting that you point that out. We're kind of getting into the point where little women arrives in the culture. So now we're not talking about the plot. We're talking about kind of its role in the culture. And something that's been interesting to me in studying this book and doing this work is that very few little women adaptations kind of engage with this history or portray Laurie as an Italian person or depict him as having brown skin, curly black hair and dark eyes. One thing, the one thing I wanted to ask you about was the 1933 adaptation of Little women, which is the earliest surviving film. It's the one that stars Catherine Hepburn. And at that time, Laurie is played by Douglas Montgomery. I couldn't find much about his ethnic background, but he appears as a blonde man with pale eyes and a pale complexion. So at that point, that was 1933. How do you think anti-Italian sentiment at that time in the culture would have played into the whitewashing of Laurie? Is he identified as being half Italian in the movie? He's certainly portrayed by a a blonde actor with very light skin and lighter colored eyes. My my first reaction to that is that, Mm -hmm. you know, we can never trust Hollywood to do justice (laughs) to literature. Um, Mm -hmm. They change things in outrageous ways, always have. Sometimes it makes sense to make a better movie. But I would put yourself or ourselves in the social frame of mind of American culture in 1930 and think of other films made at that time. Do you see any Italians? Mm, Yeah, mobster movies, right? Mm -hmm. Scarface, Little Caesar. By then, there's a very strong nationwide prejudice against Italians because of the association with the mafia, with organized crime, with Sicily. It's no longer the Italy of Florence and Venice that people perceive Italians as. So I could see pretty easily, I mean, even if this weren't the case, as I said, Hollywood changes things, but I can see pretty readily how a movie studio in 1932 would have said, "Mm, mm, mm, we don't, let's, let's not mess this up by putting, you know, Al Capone's cousin in there. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's it's so persistent. And, you know, even to the point where in the recent adaptation in 2019, Laurie is played by Timothy Chalamet. And I think that's a wonderful performance, but he certainly does not match the description of Laurie as being of darker complexion, having curly, dark hair. Modern moviegoers might not be, they wouldn't necessarily read Italian as being non-white. They wouldn't pick up on the subtleties of that moment. But it is interesting that it's been so persistent. While I have you here, I wanted to also discuss something that you get into in The Guarded Gate. We've sort of focused on Italians because of Lori, but you also, you talk a great deal about anti-Jewish immigration and the Boston Brahmin's role in perpetuating that. We have to ask some difficult questions about Louisa May Alcott herself. So I'm going to read you a couple of excerpts from Little Women. So the first one, Amy has arrived in Europe and she's taking in the people who are walking around. She observes many nations are represented many languages spoken, many costumes worn, and on a sunny day, the spectacle is as gay and brilliant as a carnival. Haughty English, lively French, 
sober Germans, handsome Spaniards, ugly Russians, and unique Jews. And then later on, she speaks of uh, Baron Rothschild's private secretary, a large-nosed Jew in tight boots, affably beaming upon the world as if his master's name crowned him with a golden halo. So this is some pretty negative stereotyping. It's, it's out of character, I want to say, for Louisa May Alcott, who was someone who was very devoted to abolitionism. Her home was a stop on the Underground Railroad. She taught people escaping from slavery to read and write. So it's thought to see any naked bigotry of this kind coming from her, but I think it is worth talking about. This kind of bigotry was mother's milk. Mm. To the Brahmins or, or even, you know, non-Brahmin families, but families of Anglo-Saxon background. The best way I have to illustrate that, this is later in history, but I think it'll, it'll make the point of a very well-born woman of Brahmin extraction, very well-connected, very well-educated, writing at the age of 32, writing letters to her mother-in-law about how she went to a Jew party last night. I hope I never have to go to one again. Oh. All they do is talk about money and furs, mm -hmm. money, diamond and furs. And at a, another event, she meets the future Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter and says he's very Jew. Who wrote these letters? Eleanor Roosevelt. Oof. Eleanor Roosevelt, as late as her being 32, this mm -hmm. was, as I said, it's mother's milk. To find somebody in that period of that background who wasn't anti-Semitic would be the surprise. Another illustration I can give you, which is from the 1880s, Louis Brandeis future Supreme Court justice, had by then become the most prominent lawyer in Boston. He was a partner in a firm that was the leading law firm at the time. And when the partner with whom he founded the firm, when that partner's daughter got married, Brandeis was not invited to the wedding, even though they were business partners and had been for years. Jews were usually looked down upon. If you look, read in the writings of Henry Adams, talk about a Brahmin family, the Adamses, I can't believe I didn't think of them. They're you know near the very top of the list. It's viciously anti-Semitic. So what she's saying here is really very mild by the standards of the time. She called the Russians dirty and the Jews meek, I think. Yeah, ugly Russians. She had a uh, close friend, maybe more than that, who was Polish. And the scholars think that she dropped in the reference to ugly Russians as alluding to their oppression of Poland. Yeah. But then ugly so, Russians, yeah. meek Jews. Henry Adams would have been the, the other way around. I don't know what he said about <laughs> the Russians, but, you know, hideous Jews, he called mm -hmm. them. You know, reeking of the ghetto, thinking that they're American, but they're not. So I don't think Louisa May Alcott and her family fit in there. But, you know, you mentioned about their abolitionism. Henry Cabot Lodge, who led the campaign to keep Italians, Jews, Russians, Turks, Greeks out of the U.S., he was a one of the most important reconstruction, his family was abolitionist. He was very much for the reconstruction of the South. He cared deeply about black voting rights in 1890, but he didn't want any of these Jews or Italians coming into the country. Why do you think that is? Obviously, it's illogical, but what was the logic there? I think that there's a little bit of a paternal feeling toward black Americans. They speak our language. We've mistreated them and we're responsible for their mistreatment. We need to do something for them. I mean, it was not, I shouldn't say just paternal, it was generous as well and open-minded. I don't think that Henry Cabot Lodge would want one moving next door to him, mm. would want a black, woman, a black family moving next door. But they did have the, these other feelings, whereas the impoverished Jews, Italians, Greeks, et cetera, from Eastern and Southern Europe, they had nothing in common. And the Americans were not responsible for their coming to the U.S., had not put them in slave and kept them in bondage, had not fought a war in their behalf. So they were more alien than the Black Americans were. 
That's very interesting. I, I hadn't quite heard that perspective before. My last question for you is specifically about the Alcott family. And there's a lot in Little Women about class and the marches as being, they're in a position to give charity to other poorer families, but they're also quite poor themselves. And again, the Alcott's really did live in dire poverty. It wasn't until the success of Little Women that they were able to live comfortably. Bronson Alcott, Louisa May Alcott's father, did come from some money and certainly knew wealthy and influential people, but had lost the family's money in a series of failed business ventures. He had a successful school that closed down when he admitted a Black student. Would the Alcotts have been considered Brahmins, or had they lost that status by the time that Louise May Alcott wrote Little Women? Well, there was no official listing. My guess is that the true Brahmin wealthy families would have said, mm, well, good family, but not good enough. Sure. Uh, yes, we can even have them over for dinner. And maybe even a son of ours could marry one of them, but it's a little bit of a step down. They wouldn't be considered Brahmin. The Brahmins, okay. Brahmins ran the show. They would have been considered Native Americans by the standard <laughs> of those of, of the time, but not, not Brahmins, I don't think. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. I have learned so much from you, just from your book and even from this conversation here today. And I know that my listeners will as well. You can buy Daniel's book, The Guarded Gate, Bigotry, Eugenics, and the Law That Kept Two Generations of Jews, Italians, and Other European Immigrants Out of America, wherever fine books are sold. You can visit him online at danieloakrent.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca or on Twitter at twitter.com slash peytonology. And if you live in Southern California, I will be appearing at the LA Times Festival of Books on April 23rd. I'm on a great panel with Adib Coram, Ashley Woodfolk, and Amy Spaulding, and I would love to see you there. Check out latimes.com slash FOB for more information. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>